turn to the Belgic Confession, page 855 in the back of your hymnals as we will introduce that first article and the Belgic Confession itself. I'll be turning in God's Word to Isaiah chapter 44, page 604 in your Bibles in front of you. I'll begin a study of the Belgic Confession where the Bible, or where the, the confession begins, where the Bible begins, namely Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. There is the, uh, the assumption there that God is. That is where all of our inquiry must begin with God, the beginning of reality, as it were. We could, or we could say that it was, it's what is forever behind and above reality. For God was, is, and will be the Almighty. That's what Genesis 1-1 states as it opens in the beginning God. And then Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8, God says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Belgic Confession, Article 1 lays out before us Scripture's testimony concerning God. Let me just read it for us. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God. Eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in the weeks ahead, we hope to look at the attributes of God as we think about the God whom we serve, the God whom, who has created all things. It was said just recently, I don't remember where, but uh, there was a uh, teacher that I was listening to that said that evangelicalism has not had such a poverty of theology as we do in this day. So little understanding of who God is and how we are to think of Him and to worship Him. We want to, tonight, look at the setting into which the Belgic Confession came about and the history of persecution against Christianity throughout the ages and to begin to answer that question, why is it important to study theology? The Belgian Confession was written in 1561 by Guido de Bray in the Lowlands, which present-day Netherlands and Belgium, hence the name the Belgic Confession, was the earliest of those documents that we know as the three forms of unity. I might ask some of you what the other two are, but I'll give those to you. The Heidelberg Catechism, written in 1563, and then the Canons of Dort in 1618 and 19. 
But this, the earliest of those documents, in, in the 1550s, the Netherlands was ruled by the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. He was king of Spain, Charles I, and became Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. And his great desire was to wipe out any anti-Catholic sects in the, uh, in the world at that time. Anything that stood against the Roman Catholic Church. He died in 1555, and his son became the king of Spain, King Philip II. And he took up that charge with great zeal to wipe out any of those called Protestants. He sought to exterminate any of those who wanted to reform the church from her spiritual abuses. It was King Philip to whom Guido de Bray directed his dedicatory epistle. Quite often when books were written back then, they would write a, a dedication at the beginning, much like our kind of a weak equivalent, but a preface in the book today, who this is to and, and what it's about and what the chapters are going to be about. And Guido de Bray wrote to King Philip to address the allegations that Reformed Protestants were, quote, disobedient rebels intent on destroying the civil government and wanting to throw the world into confusion and disorder, intent on breaking free from the king's authority and power, unquote. That was the charge against them. So he said, we're, we're addressing that in this confession that's being written. This is some of what we want to cover. His response in this dedicatory epistle is this, Before God and his angels, we confess that we desire to live in obedience under the magistrate with clear consciences before God, serving him and reforming our lives in conformity to his word and holy commandments. Now this word Protestants, that came from the adversaries. That's the name they were given because they were protesting many of the abuses in the church. And they made clear uh, to the king, these Protestants, that they prayed for the rulers, those who were governing, because they recognized from Scripture that not a single Ruler was in place apart from God's sovereign decree. He put them there. Daniel said that in his uh, second chapter of the book of Daniel when he says the Lord raises up and brings down. And as good followers of the Bible, we believe that. He said this, they did not hesitate to pay their taxes, which was an accusation that they were hesitant to do so. And he's also declared we're prompt to obey But he also acknowledged that they could not adopt or obey any teaching of church or state that stood against the word of God. He wrote further, We have the fear of God before our eyes and are in dread of the warning of Jesus Christ, who tells us that he shall forsake us before God and his Father if we deny him before men. And then this powerful statement, Therefore, we will suffer our backs to be beaten, our tongues to be cut out, our mouths to be gagged, and our whole body to be burnt, rather than deny Christ and the full revelation of God, which is found in his word alone. For we know that he who would follow Christ must take up his cross and deny himself. How we understood following after Christ. Do we think of it that way, I wonder? We don't think it's going to call us to such sacrifice, to such determination, 
And yet, as we will see moving forward tonight, the world stands against God and against grace, against the Lord Jesus Christ. Debray goes on in his preface or in his dedication. We will render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. For God has made us his own at a very high price, referring to the cost of his own son. We will give to the government what is their right, but to God, he alone receives our whole hearts, our worship. Debray reminded the king of his duty before the Lord. He said this, it was to rule justly, to listen fairly, to remove slander from the courtroom, and display the chief virtues of mercy and gentleness which distinguish the true king from the tyrant. So very helpful. Old document, and yet what a powerful statement. What is the magistrate to do? What is the one in power to do? Let me read that again. To rule justly, to listen fairly, to remove slander from the courtroom as the Protestants were being slandered, and to display the chief virtues of mercy and gentleness, which distinguish the true king from the tyrant. Now, there was great disagreement, as we know, about what needed to change in the church, or if anything needed to be changed in the church. Those who sought to reform the Roman Catholic Church indicated that much had been added to the gospel, things added that were not to be added, along with this threat, that those who refused to do these things, to keep these things, would be damned with their bodies, deserving to be destroyed and their souls to be cast into hell. Strong language intended to intimidate, to terrify, to silence these Protestants. Debray responded this way, Our weak flesh trembles at such words, terrified by the threats of those who have the power to reduce us to ashes. But from the other side, we hear what the apostle says, Though an angel were to descend from heaven and to preach anything other than the gospel, let him be accursed. Galatians 1 verse 8. And St. John says, I warn every man that hears the prophecies of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God shall add to him the plagues described in this book. Revelation 22 verse 18. He goes on, we therefore see that we are bidden to follow only the word of God and not what we think fit that we are forbidden to add or subtract anything from the holy commandments of Almighty God. The courage of this individual who was hunted down and imprisoned ultimately. Debray closed his dedication to the king. Quote, remember that the world has always hated the light and rebelled against the truth. Is he who has the word of truth in his mouth a rebel merely because he is opposed by men? On the contrary, rebelliousness and scandal should be imputed to the devil, who in order not to lose his own kingdom, stirs up rebellion and tumult to hinder the advance of the word of truth. In addition, there is the ingratitude of the world, which instead of receiving thankfully the word of its master, Shepherd and God sets itself against him for no other reason than that it has lived for a long time in error. 
It is your duty, most gracious Lord, referring to King Philip, to take hold of these matters with understanding and to oppose error, no matter how deeply rooted by the passage of time, and to defend the innocence of those who have hitherto been oppressed rather than heard by the courts. He was writing to indicate that there is nothing that these Christians, as we now call ourselves, these Protestants were holding to that was not in line, that was out of line with Scripture. They were not rebellious. They were not holding to anything other than historic Christianity and had no intention of overthrowing the authorities, but rather to submit to the supreme authority of God in doctrine and in life and to those whom God had ordained to be in power in all things lawful. That's the background of the writing of this confession. What is the history of religious persecution? We know the history of persecution of Christianity is not new to the 16th century. Persecution has been from the very beginning between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Jesus says, if they hate you, remember that they hated me first. He says in John 16, remember that you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He who trusts in me shall be preserved by my Father. In the years after Jesus' ascension, Christians endured severe persecution. They were called atheists by the Romans. Why were they called atheists? Because they didn't worship the gods of the empire. It wasn't that they didn't worship God. It was that they didn't worship the gods of Rome. They refused to do so. This term, atheist, was a derogatory term, meaning that they were worthy of condemnation for being non-participants in the religion set up by the emperor and by the empire. But the early Christians were not rebellious. Their so-called crime was that refusal to engage in the practices of the empire, to engage in worship of the gods. They simply would not do that. In fact, they sought to bring a better understanding to how individuals were to live in society. They opposed infant exposure where those who didn't want their children would leave them exposed to die. They opposed blood sports. They advocated for better treatment of women and children and servants. They encouraged marriage between one man and one woman for life. They worked for just and moral society. Now, it's true that not everyone in Rome was advocating for these things, but the point I'm making here is that Christians were not the enemy of the empire as they were made out to be. There's an interesting book by Larry Hurtado that I would encourage you to read. It's called Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World. Fascinating study of how Christians were being portrayed and why they were being portrayed that way and how they acted. What was the difference between Christians and following after God? 
and the society around them. Very interesting study. There were many who tried to stir up further persecution against Christians by saying that if they only had the numbers, they would certainly overthrow the empire. The only reason they hadn't done that yet was because they lacked the numbers, which of course was not true. It was slander. Dieter de Bray addresses that in his day, in his uh, dedication to King Philip as well. He says, we are not seditious. We are not those who seek the destruction of the king and his rule. We are those, however, who want to see God honored and God worshipped. Therefore, we submit to him. It was slander and hatred that drove persecution. Persecution of Christians continues to be high today and is rising in the West, which is quite ironic given the fact that Christianity has developed so much of what the West has come to know uh, as, as the structure upon which civilization can flourish. Now we act as though that is not true, that it is only oppressive. That which we have now is oppressive. Just law courts and a trial by jury and all of these other things which develop out of biblical instruction, that's all being thrown off as imperialist and patriarchal. We must be prepared, however, your people, for this persecution as, as this directive against Christianity continues to grow. And we must know what we believe and why we believe it. We need to know what we confess and why we confess it. Many governments are taking increasing power on themselves, demanding total submission. It's not surprising when we think of the fact that man is created to worship. He's incurably religious, but sinful man will not worship God. If rejection of God continues to grow and transcendent biblical truth is continuously undermined, confessing Christians will face increasing persecution for not going along with this revolution. New ways of seeing, understanding are all around us. And nothing in the world is safe from redefinition. We only have to look at our present situation, to know that. But what does Peter say in his day? 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, this is to be expected. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He says, this is what we may have to suffer for. Let us not suffer, he says, for this. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him be not ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The Lord calls us to be faithful, to declare the truth, 
And it begins with who God is. What do we believe about Him? What does His Word say? And we must be willing and ready to profess this. What does the world believe and confess? Well, that's a hard question to answer as the definitions keep moving. The goalposts, as it were, keep sliding. Almost nothing seems permanent. Almost before the ink is dry on new definitions, newer definitions come behind. And those who thought they were far enough in the revolution find themselves out of step with the revolution which wants to go further still. How do we keep a steady footing? Well, we turn to God and to his word. Society at present is in whitewater rapids on top of the water for the time being, but if it continues as this, it will be dashed against the rocks. Christians perhaps aren't called atheists yet. Maybe that's because there's not enough religion, enough religious understanding in our culture to even know what the term means. But it's possible that that term comes. Certainly they want to be, uh, those who stand against God and his word, want to label Christians as enemies of the state, enemies of society. An unavoidable conflict seems uh, is coming as a society is hell-bent on building a tower and making a name for itself, establishing its own civilization, wanting to make its own world. It says that Christianity has nothing to do with the stability that we've experienced in Western civilization over the last centuries, but it is something which is oppressive that needs to be jettisoned. And the reason you must know what you believe Why you believe it is the stability of life depends upon it. Stability is not part of sinful man's mental landscape. He doesn't want to stand in one place. He wants to create his own reality. Man continually wants to chart new paths with no compass. The reason you must confess the truth is because God commands you to do so. And because the world is hopelessly lost without the truth confessed by the people of God on earth. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. And hope is in short supply these days as people are hopeless, despairing, because they are following the lies of the culture or the priorities, the faulty priorities, the worship of Society. We're not in the promised land. That land will come with Christ's return. I think perhaps we thought that for a time. Oh, the promised land, the new Israel, the the new place of God's kingdom. And yet what we see is God was gracious for a time, and yet we have turned from him and no longer seek to follow his paths. So what do we do? Well, it is by faith that people are saved, faith in Christ, and that faith comes from hearing the word of God. We must proclaim the word of God. It continues to be our call, and we must do so courageously when we're gathered together and when we go out, talking to people, helping them 
think about what it is they believe. I was talking to the catechism kids this morning about questions that we can ask that are not gospel presentation questions, but they help us get people to think about what it is they believe. The first question is, what do you mean by that? When someone says something, I've used these questions here before. I think they're helpful though. One doesn't, perhaps someone doesn't want to talk about their worldview, but when they make a statement, well, I don't believe in God, or I believe in evolution, ask them, what do you mean by that? How do, we, how do things come to be? What is your hope? Where is your foundation? And then the next question you ask them is, how, did you, how do you come to know that? What's the foundation of, of your understanding of the world? Get them to think and to be challenged to think about what they mean by what they say. Very often, they don't know what they mean. They've just parroted what they're hearing. And also to think about, how did you come to know that? What's your authority? What's your foundation? And that also is a challenge to them to to reflect upon. Well, I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm not sure. We believe and we confess God has revealed himself to us. Now, the Belgian Confession and the other confessional documents that we hold dear help us to set before ourselves and the world the essential truths of the faith once for all entrusted to the saints. When we confess one God, we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, Almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. Dear brothers and sisters, it's my intention to use these attributes to think about God and to be comforted as we think about his greatness, but also his revelatory word that we might remember that he is for his people. Begins here in the beginning, God. If we start anywhere else with any other theory, we will not understand the world or ourselves. It's that simple. It's that basic. Theology matters because what we worship matters. Studying theology is vitally important. Kelvin's classic opening statement in his Institutes of the Religion states that the beginning of all true wisdom for living is knowledge of God and of ourselves. And he proceeds in many pages, to lay that out for us, helpfully. To think about what it means to live under God and for God. When we know about God, or what we know about God, rather grounds us and is particularly comforting for us in light of the history of the persecution that we've very quickly covered tonight. But God reigns over all. Nothing happens apart from his perfect plan. Listen to Article 13 of the Belgic Confession. Article 13 says, We believe that this good God, after he created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will, in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. A concise statement of what God's word teaches concerning his sovereignty. The article goes on, This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father. 
He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures under his control, so that not one of the hairs on our heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought we rest, knowing that he holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without his permission and will. Let me conclude by saying this. To begin with a clear view of God and his glory is the only sure foundation for us to stand against those threats and against those attempts to intimidate. We know there's an onslaught of lies, threats from human authorities today who have power to bring great pains and sufferings on those under their charge. But we know that God has no equal, that he will not share his glory with another, that he will not forget those who are his own. We heard that this morning. He does not forget us. He has engraved us on the palms of his hands. There's none like him. He will judge sinners and bring justice upon the earth. He will deliver his people from all harm, the psalmist says. Psalm 121. The one that all must fear, that is, the one that all must reverence and obey with absolute submission, is the one who controls man's eternal destiny. The only true God. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who can destroy only the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. In Hebrews 12, we are warned not to kindle the wrath of the Lord, for our God is a consuming fire. Not intended to keep us away from God, to keep anyone from turning to God, but to remind sinners of the God to whom they must turn. Theology matters. It shapes our living. It shapes our dying, as we'll see when we pick up this article the next time we're together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to consider your word and your teaching about yourself, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to listen well and to think clearly. Whenever we're speaking of you, it's far beyond our comprehension. And yet you do reveal yourself to us. You, as it were, accommodate yourself to us that we might understand in part who you are, that we might have comfort, that we might find courage. We thank you for those who have gone before, willing to stand and to write confessions and to even die for them. We pray, O Lord, that we too would be willing to stand, to know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Lord, may it be that our focus is to live for you each and every day. Hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.